Hello, everybody, and welcome back to AMTV Radio. This is the podcast where I'm joined by a very special guest each time, and we chat about whatever on earth we would like to. And today, I am joined by someone who is a writer and has been for many years, a playwright, has written for radio, television, audio, a lot of things. We're going to try and delve into as much as possible today. I am joined by Stephen Wyatt. How are you, Stephen? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Oh, Brill, thank you for coming. And as I say, I'm sure some of the audience listening might be aware of yourself and some of your work, but perhaps for the contingent that might not be as familiar, do you just want to tell us a bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Yes, well, I'm a a playwright, mostly. Um, I suppose I'm probably best known in the world for 35 years ago. I wrote two Doctor Who stories, one called Paradise Towers and the other called Greatest Show in the Galaxy which to my amazement uh, still arouse interest (laughs) and even some controversy. Um, (laughs) So that's okay. But I had a long period when I did a great deal of uh, radio work, both original plays and also a lot of adaptations. Yeah. Ben Chandler, Vanity Fair, uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, which is my craziest project. very great fun and at the moment I'm back with my greatest love which is theatre um, and I have a tour of a new play called Two Cigarettes in the Dark commencing at the Chichester Festival Theatre next February starring the wonderful Dame Penelope Keith so that's nice. a big boost and I'm very much looking forward to that. Now that'll be wonderful and I mean already if anyone listening is around the area definitely go and check that out next February I'm, I'll try and get down for it myself you know travel permitting and the, if the pandemic yeah. finally goes away so <laughs> properly anyway yeah, we so, hope yeah. so yeah. It, yeah it does it does a tour so it goes to quite a few other places oh lovely uh, so it goes to Bath, Brighton, Richmond, Guildford, Cardiff, um, Malvern, I think there's one I haven't mentioned, but anyway, it's a nine-week tour, so there's oh, quite a few opportunities to grab it if you're within reach of those places. Absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, we'll talk more about the new player a bit later on, but I just wanted to ask Stephen, like going going back, what got you into this this whole industry or, or writing, if you like, specifically? Because I guess everyone has a, a different story, don't they? You have, you have those who feel, you know, they knew they wanted to do it since they were small. You have some who, I guess, fell into it by accident. Or So what, what's your story behind getting into all this? Well, I, as a kid, I always filled notebooks with stories and they were mostly plays. Enough. And I did when I was at university. I, you know, wrote some review sketches and at the end of that time, I wrote my first full-length play, mm. but I didn't ever think I was going to become a you know a, a full-time freelance writer. I started. I was going to be an academic, and I spent a certain amount of time, not very long, sure. in a drama department. Um, and I just found out it wasn't for me, so I sort of launched out into this sort of strange, unsettling world where you never know quite what's going to happen next. Yes. Um, and I've sort of ducked and dived ever since. Um, <laughs> like a true creative. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you do. Yeah, I think you have to. Yeah. Um, very nice radio writer, Nick Warburton, said you need three things to succeed, which are talent, determination and luck. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. Uh, and I think a lot of <laughs> luck comes out of determination, frankly. You've just got to try and keep going. Um, yeah. I had an interesting start because the first thing I did, I worked with the Belgrade Coventry Theatre and Education team as their resident writer uh, for a year. And I think that was good because you were writing for kids yes. and kids have art demand things that keep their attention. Yes, yeah. And, and it's that's a very good part of the learning process you know don't go on too long Mm. keep things moving so I suppose that's always been one of the guiding principles yeah don't they always say kids are the are the toughest audience because they don't sugarcoat anything do they if they don't like something they'll they'll say it and you and like you say holding their attention I mean I've done various schools tours you know whether whether it's educational stuff or or pantomime and and like you say that the speed at which you have to get through things to because you see it don't you if if it goes on too long you just see their faces flagging they're not paying attention so but I agree I think it's a good testing ground for anything really to do it to children 
I mean, like the first time I did, I wrote a, couple, uh, a play for the Unicorn Theatre for Children at one point, and my director said the important thing is something interesting has to happen every three minutes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think that I think it's good. It's a good thing for Doctor Who as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Works for a lot of things, I suppose, when you put it in context. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so moving into, I guess, uh, just from reading on your website as well, uh, your first bit of television work just before Doctor Who, I believe, was a um, a project called Claws in uh, 1987. Right. Yeah, that was actually the only original play for television I've done. Sure. Um, it was uh, it was about a power struggle within a cat club. And mm. um, it was based in past of experiences my mother had getting involved in a pedigree and all the battles and intrigues and sabotage that went yeah. on. Uh, and it had a lovely cast, it was, which was headed by Brenda Blessing and Simon Jones, mm. both of whom wonderful actors. So it was very good fun. And yes, it was my calling card for Doctor Who as well. Yes. So when you when you wrote Claws then, because obviously, I guess the the landscape of television or the industry as a whole, if you like, has shifted over the last 30 years. So was it a case yeah. of could you just submit your script for Claws to someone at the BBC or was it what was the process, I guess, of getting it to, to the screen? The process was that I submitted uh, because producers then have slightly more autonomy than they do now. Yeah. Um, I submitted a proposal to a script editor I knew and his producer hmm. and they presented the idea to the department and the department uh, commissioned it and then it, there's a lot of coming and going and then they gave a go ahead for it to, to, to go ahead. I mean, it seemed very protracted at the time, but when you hear about what happens on feature films, it went very speedily indeed. Yes, the, yeah. the, the, the odd thing was, you know, that it was in the can a year before mm. Uh, mm. Paradise Towers, but actually I think it went out afterwards or within about ah. a week. Okay, so I was, that's interesting because I was going to ask, again, b before you said that, assuming Claws was the first one that went out, but if it was Doctor Who, I suppose it works the same. But w what was that like for you then as a, as a young writer at the time, sort of seeing your work, your name on the on the television screen, you know, on BBC One? It's very, well, it's very strange because I think in that, by that point in the process, you sort of slightly, it's it, it's got a life beyond you. Yes, yeah. It, you know, it, it's not you sitting alone in, in front of your screen, or in that point it was a typewriter, <laughs> yes. um, imagining things. By the time it's gone through all those processes, it feels something slightly, I don't mean this in a bad way, it, no, sure. it's something outside you. Yes. Uh, yeah. that, you know, that you feel in a way a bit, sometimes feel a bit detached from for that reason. Sure, yeah. And then, recently... Yeah, I guess like... I recently re re replayed for the first time because the Blu-ray came out. I hadn't watched Paradise Towers for about probably over twenty years. You know, and I thought, oh, <laughs> really? Is that what happened? Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, nice segue into Paradise Towers, which, of course, as you say, was your first uh, Doctor yeah. Who commission. And I suppose at that point in in the show's history, you know, with Sylvester coming in as the new Doctor, and the show was in a bit—I think it's fair to say—behind the scenes, the show was in a bit of a tough spot with like upper management of the BBC. I think it was well, it's well known now that the some of the higher ups weren't too keen on it, so they weren't too interested in you know promoting it, putting it in a good time slot. So, so for you then, when um. Andrew Cartmel or John Nathan Turner, when you know when they reached out to you, um, did they give you much indication of what they wanted Paradise Towers to be, or were they literally like, "We've got four episodes, write something"? <laughs> well, it was somewhere between the two. Uh, the, the starting point I was was that I sent uh, a clause to John Nathan Turner, and he passed it on to Andrew, who was then a new script editor. Yes, and I, I frankly could not have walked through the door of the. Doctor Who office at a better time because mm. Andrew was very keen, very bright, and very much open to new ideas. He was more interested in good writing yes. than in somebody who'd written science fiction before. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was great for me because I'm not fundamentally a science fiction writer. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I've said this quite a few times, I really find all this Gallifrey time lord <laughs> stuff 
really rather boring. Um, <laughs> I, I don't care about it. Um, I don't, terrible, I don't even find the Daleks that interesting. <laughs> uh, although I'm old enough to have, you know, cowered when they of first course, came yeah. in. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, great image, but at this point, if somebody said, "Would you like to write a story in the Daleks?" and I, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the, we felt that the whole series had become very, very introverted. You know, and it was, as I said, you know, you had to have a PhD in who, who studies to understand sure. how it's going on. <laughs> yes. yeah. uh, and I said, "Well, I, I'm old enough to have seen the first episode when it went out." And as far as I was concerned, it was about a man and a companion in a phone box who went places and had adventures. And mm. that to me is the basic concept. And all the other stuff that's accumulated since is to me comparatively not very interesting. So sure. it was great. I, I was there exactly the right moment. Mm. We were really, really up against it in terms of time. Yeah. Uh, I uh, ended up writing the first drafts of episode two three and four of paradise towers in six days wow <laughs> no easy feat yeah <laughs> uh, 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 so uh because that's what you know we really had um uh, andrew had acquired with the job a, a skip by pip and jane baker and I, I don't think it's very much of a secret that they all didn't get on yes yeah and that andrew felt like i was his first writer if you see what i mean yes yeah and he as you know he he created a team of writers all you know uh ian briggs graham curry ben aronovitz um so there was a there was a feel around his office of writers meeting chatting stuff it was a very creative period you know but yeah we didn't really have much time to think about what we were doing yes yeah and interestingly, when I started, uh, uh, the Doctor hadn't been cast. So mm. I started writing the script with a rather generic character called the Doctor. Yes. Yeah. And it was only a way into the process that Sylvester was cast and able to make a few changes. But mm. it's for Sylvester, it was slightly too wordy a script. Sure. Um, I, I think when I when I got to Greatest Show in the Galaxy, I was much more able to take cater it to Sylvester whose yes. uh, theatre work I knew, and I mm. knew what, what he, that part of his personality and the, the juggling and all that sort of skills. Um, yeah. So uh, actually juggling wasn't one of his skills. It was Because <laughs> oh. I knew he'd done all this circus tricks and stuff when he was touring. So I put them all in and they were all fine, apart from the juggling. He'd never juggled in his life. So that surprises me. You'd, you'd, you'd never <laughs> guess when watching it, though, would you? He's, he's not too bad at yeah, it. So, well, yeah. He's a true pro. He took it seriously. Um, but anyway, so that was slightly odd um, in that I, therefore, you know, there's a lot of talk now about how the doctor sure. was developed and Sylvester. In a way, a lot of what happened in uh, Paradise Towers was decided before we even knew who the Doctor was going to be. Yes, yeah. And I think a lot of writers, like you say, I think Pip and Jane Baker had the same issue when they wrote that opening story. They didn't know who the... Or I think they might have even thought it was still going to be Colin Baker at that point, and then obviously it changed. Um, but I think Paradise Tower shows what, what you said earlier, you know, about the whole how for yourself as a writer, you don't find like the whole, you know, the, the Time Lord, the whole backstory that interesting. But I think that is is so refreshing in Paradise Towers, though, because like you say, there's there's none of that. It's just they turn up and they have this adventure. And I think I think as as a viewer as well, like myself, at least like, you you know, you don't want all that, you know, the back the lore of it. If you, you don't want that every single week, it's nice just to have an adventure where they, they get involved in the thick of it and then they have to find a way out of it. So I think it absolutely works for the best. I know you're saying like, you know, you wrote it for a generic doctor at the time because, you know, you weren't sure of who was going to be cast. But I think so. Um, whether it was a, a change you yourself made or or Andrew or Sylvester on the shooting day, there's that one scene, I think, where, you know, the doctor sat with the two caretakers who are watching him and he tricks them into letting him go. That's to me at least. That screams Sylvester. That whole you know uh, comedy, du you know duping or manipulation. So uh, yeah, I think he, he found his feet in it quite well. 
He did indeed. I mean, I think that scene was in the original script beforehand, mm. you know, but the one, one detail is definitely Sylvester is when they arrive on the, the planet and there is this sort of rusting sort of pump standing yes. there yeah. and he talks to it yeah. and says hello and, and Mel said, oh, doctor, and he said, well, you never know. That, that was a, that's a Sylvester um, <laughs> impro, and I think it sort of gives you a feel of how, how he was going to do it. Yes, um, yeah. And, and was it exciting for you again as a, as a writer seeing, you know, because for Paradise Towers, you know, the main villain, Richard Breyers, Mr. Good himself, if you like, that must have been quite a, quite a surprise to get someone, I guess, of that calibre, I suppose, in, in, the, in the show. <laughs> Well, I was, because with all the Blu-rays, there is now all this correspondence about who is offered to it, who is mm. offered to it. I, I actually wanted T.P. McKenna, who then played yes. who I think I saw a rather more sinister character than the way Richard played it, which was very, very funny. And yes. I discovered yes. some of the archives in Richardson was offered the part, and that's a mind-blowing concept to me. Yeah. Uh, 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 but it would have been totally different. Absolutely. No, I, I mean, you know, so Richards is very funny and on top of the language and relishing the language. So I, I don't want to knock it. But no, um, of course, yeah. Uh, though I think that everybody agrees, and I think eventually even he did, although not publicly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the the coagnon scenes are a bit over the top. Sure, you know, he, uh, they could have been. Unfortunately, they were shot first. They were the first. Right. Right. <laughs> And I don't think he'd quite got the measure of it, or he'd got, he, he, he wasn't quite, it could have been turned down a bit as a performance. Sure, like sure. That, uh, and it would have been more uh, scarier if it had. Uh, I, I, the thing I was going to just add is that when you said about the, the powers that be really were gunning for Doctor Who, uh, one of the interesting things was with Paradise Towers that, a lot of the regular fans absolutely loathed it. Right. And the powers that be actually rather liked it. Yes, yeah. I actually have a quote from uh, Jonathan Powell, who was, I believe, yeah. the head of drama at that point, I think. Yeah. He was the head of drama, yeah, who was very anti-Doctor Who. And he yeah. sort of said, oh, oh, I rather like this one. Can we have more like this? So, <laughs> uh, so in a way... You've got the, the paradox. The fans were sort of in apoplexy about how it had destroyed their series, and the head of the club <laughs> who didn't like the series was saying, "I think this is a great way forward." You know, it's are. just that proof, isn't it? You you can't win with Doctor Who. I think you can't please everybody, whether it's the higher ups or some sections of the viewing audience. But I mean, as it stands, I I mean personally, I think Paradise Towers, as mentioned, is such a I think it's such a refreshing story for where it falls in, in Doctor Who's place. I think it it's a fun adventure, lots of memorable characters. And I think over the last 35 years, I think, well, from what I see anyway, you know, like on social media and chatting with friends, people seem to have really come around, not just on Paradise Towers, but that whole season, I think, you know, when the Blu-ray came out a few months ago. I saw people saying, oh, you know, we love it. You know, we love how fun it is, how fresh it feels, how in a way light it is in terms of how much fun there is. So I think opinions have really, from what I've seen anyway, seem to have turned around on on that section of Who. I I think it has. And also I've uh, talked to people who were younger at that time, you know, in their their mid-teens, rather than the people that the very vociferous fans were all in their 20s and 30s. And... um, Several of them have said to me, you know, they just loved it. I mean, Gareth Kavanagh, who is um, runs Cutaway Comics and is yes. doing the uh, uh, this follow-up comic, Paradise Found, mm. uh, he remembers it as a kid, and he's it's always stayed with him, and he's always wanted to do a comic version of it. Yes, uh, you know, but of course, at the time, all we got was the negativity out of the fans. Sure. Yeah. It was, I have to say, it was partly JT's fault, but there was a, the atmosphere was a bit poisonous, to be honest. Yeah. I think when people (laughs) look back at late 80s, who I think, like you say, a a combination of whether it was the higher ups on occasion or the like fan publications, or it just, it wasn't the most pleasant time, it seems like, to be working on the program in some aspects, I guess. 
Um, I mean, for us, we were, we were, honestly, I, I had a great time. I mean, yeah. I've, never, I've never had so much freedom in my life. In, I, and I realised, you know, and I worked after that on a couple of series, Casualty, course, yeah. and but I realised I would never have the same freedom again. Sure, yeah. But I think that's partly yeah, Doctor Who's yeah. format, isn't it? Just because of how you can literally do anything with it, I suppose, which is, I guess, is a writer's dream, right? You know, saying, here's a story, here's the basic concept, like you say, a guy in a phone box and he lands somewhere. And from that, it's yeah. literally whatever the hell you want it to be. Um, and and on that, of course, you came back. You returned the, the yes. following year to pen The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. So, so with that one, again, was that Andrew sort of saying, again, that we got the praise from Paradise Towers, you know, we really enjoyed it. Can you uh, write another one for us? Yeah, it was, it was, a, they had, I was going to say, they had very different histories because uh, Paradise Towers was written so fast, there aren't even synopsis plans for episodes yes. two and four, which is extremely oh. unusual in television, which is deeply bureaucratic, to have something commissioned and the BBC parting for mon- with money for it without yeah. anything on paper. <laughs> with no knowledge of it, yes. Greatest uh, show in, in the way had a slightly opposite history, which was that, I mean, it was, in principle, I was commissioned again right after Paradise Towers, but there was yeah. quite a long period in between. And there were quite a few ideas for it, which originally JNT wanted to do something built around the, um, God, where was it? somewhere Woburn Abbey I think it was it had a doctor oh, right. um, around that which really didn't work mm-hmm. and at that point he gave the show the title The Greatest Show in the Galaxy and we all went yes. um, no pressure there then yeah uh, <laughs> I wonder if that um, has a double meaning perhaps <laughs> <laughs> and then Andrew and I spent quite a lot of time doing a series which was built around computer games mm. Um, which again really didn't work sure. and then we got into circuses um, and uh, at that point suddenly it was said this is not going to be a three-part studio story which is why we'd come up with all the computers this is going to be a four-part story with a whole episode of outside broadcast yes yeah and half of me went, oh, great. Half of me went, oh, great, more money, more time. <laughs> and the other half went, how the hell am I supposed to do it? So I, most of the first episode came about getting to the surface. Yes, yeah. Which in a way I quite like because it, if you start, if everything would have been in the circus, you wouldn't have got a sense of how claustrophobic it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and you wouldn't have known about the characters who were going there, people like the Mags and Captain Cook. You sort of need a bit of time to get to know them before they arrived. Yes. Um, but it was there for a quite a protracted process. I mean, there were a lot of different versions of it. Mm. Um, and so it had the, almost the opposite. I think it's about, I, I sort of gave them away some time ago, but I think there were about, Again, about six or seven different oh, wow. synopses. Not all detailed synopses, but the three or four pages. Yes. Um, and of course, when you start writing, it all changes anyway. But, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> we were struggling at some points to try and make about what we were trying to do. Um, yeah. And I, the thing about that, you know, oddly, because um, it's quite a weird script. Um, <laughs> yes. The I think what happened was all the right bits got kept and all the bad bits went away. So it as it it, it sort of the good ideas managed to survive all the versions and acquire better ideas, and the really crap bits got lost. (laughs) Yeah, which which is hopefully what you want. I guess when you go through various drafts, you want to filter out all the you know all the little niggles. Absolutely, yes. So, yes. so it was a much longer process then. Therefore, sure. Um, um, which um, I guess, it, which is both good and bad. Half of you loved the pressure. You know, there isn't any time to argue about this. Just write it. Mm. And the other half is, you know, sometimes you think, oh, the paradise towers. Some of the second half could have been done better. Sure, sure. You no, know, yeah. If we'd had more time. 
Well, I, I think what couldn't have been done better for Greatest Show is the casting of the guest stars. I mean, Ian Reddington as the chief clown, Jessica Martin as Mags, T.P. McKenna as, as the captain. I mean, for those actors, for those characters, I mean, I, I watched it again recently and you just think, I can't think of anyone, at the, you know, of the time who could have possibly done, you know, Ian especially as the chief clown, all those little, it's the, you know, the little mannerisms he does with the hands and those lovely oh. big eyes he has, you know, I think it's it's that proof, I think, where some actors, you know, when they're given a role like that, that's quite weird, I think they, there's the temptation to make it, you know, as big and loud as possible because it's yeah. weird, whereas I love how Ian's quite quiet the whole way through, he's very... Yes. It's all in the movements and the the fa- and it's it's still unnerving, you know, for a thirty plus year old piece of telly. That some of those moments with him are really unnerving, and I think that's a testament to well, not just your writing of the character, but his his portrayal, how he brought it to to life. Absolutely, I don't get cross about many things to do with comments, but I do get a bit fed up when people say, "Oh, he makes such an impression as the chief clown, even though he doesn't have many lines." Mm. And I always want to say he made the impression because he didn't have too many lines. Exactly, yeah. And in some way, because I'd always had the concept, because I think when I was talking to Andrew about clowns, he was thinking more of the sort of Coco the Clown, Ronald McDonald sort of clown. Yes. No, I remember when I was a kid, there were these really scary, elegant figures with white faces and glitter costume who never got dirty. They just ordered the other clowns around. Yes, yeah. That's what I, so I always had that image in my mind. And even I was thinking sometimes I was writing it, oh, he's not saying very much. Yeah. And then I realized actually, no, that's right, because he needs the image is so powerful. Hmm. And that, and it gave Ian the space to do things in it, which was fantastic, you know. Absolutely. Uh, one character, though, I guess, who did have a, a lot to say, partly of the character is, of course, the captain, who who loves yeah. talking about all his adventures and all his stories. Yeah. And so were you were you happy? Were you happy then to get T.P. McKenna after you said you did want him originally for Paradise I was, Towers? I was absolutely delighted. Absolutely. I mean, it really uh, with uh, Paradise Towers, you could say, you know, there were certain elements which could have been better. Some of the casting could have been a bit stronger. Um some of the costuming could have been a bit more on. The set is very good. Um, mm. Some of the lighting. Could, in the case of Greatest Show, I, I mean, it's it's well cast. It's very well designed. The costumes are terrific. The direction is terrific. The music is good. Um, you know, it's all almost faultless. You know, yeah. I, I, yeah. I never want to go back. And I, there's nothing in that I want to say. Please, could we do it another way? Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, absolutely perfect, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose you were almost under threat of it uh, not going ahead because rather infamously, the uh, the BBC found asbestos in their studios, which is never good. So obviously they, they found a solution that the benefit of the story, I guess, largely taking place in a circus tent. But um, when that news first trickled down to you, you know, oh, we, we've lost the studio time. Were you a bit worried that it might it might never happen or? Well, I was quite sort of protected from it, really. I really didn't. I, I had a few murmurings, but I wasn't really told much. Right. Until actually, right. They, uh, basically, John Nathan Turner and I think it was the designer, David Lasky, who mm. worked out that if we use the car park at Elstree, Yes. We could build a tent there, and so that was. I sort of knew by the time we'd. They sort of spared me the. It could be cancelled. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I on. I think it was hugely to the advantage of the story because Absolutely. Uh, the tent looks like a real tent with a real tent acoustic, and it would be otherwise have been inside a studio, and I think it would have been less exciting, less raw. Um, I mean, it was a nightmare for everybody yeah. because, because of the, you know, you were there on the car park, so there were planes going over, there were vans yes, coming yeah. by. Uh, and so the number of times the shooting had to be suspended or something had to be retaken um, was, was, was high. It was it's high pressure. But, of course, uh, yeah. Uh, I think it, I, I, artistically, I think it was very much for the good. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole story, as you say, the look, the design, the feel, the characters, it all just, it, it blends wonderfully. And I think it embodies that sort of 
what we're saying about, I guess, the core of Doctor Who about that there being just this central adventure and how the main characters weave their way into it. And I think it works a treat. So, two, yeah, two great stories, in my opinion. Um, Thank you very much. So, so after that, then, obviously, Doctor Who ran on for another year before it was finally axed or, or sorry, as the BBC said, rested in, in inverted commas. Um, but was there ever, before it got axed, was there ever any talk about you potentially coming back for a third? Or did you feel in yourself, you thought, I've, I've sort of done that now, I want to do something else? Well, a, a bit of both. Um, on one hand, I'd been very, in, in Andrew's core group of writers, I'd been very, very lucky because I'd had, in the first two seasons, two four-part series. Yes. So it, yeah. it was only fair that all those other people, you know, Ian and Ben and Graham, should get a crack of the whip rather, rather than me and, you know, bringing in Mark Platt and Rona. So I, I never expected to be part of a third season yeah, I, I nobody knew. I think that part, that that was going to be the last season, mm. and also, you know, I you're right. I didn't necessarily want to spend my want to be always a Doctor Who writer. Yes, yeah, uh, no, yeah. Of course. And so I, you know, I started doing other series like Casualty and House of Elliot. Um, yeah, mm. so that that's what happened. So- so so on on casualty just as an example because i'm a casualty fan myself and obviously that uh show is uh, as we all know it's a recurring drama it's been on the air for 35 plus years so obviously you said you had that freedom with doctor who obviously i guess casualty in some sense is a bit more regimented in the sense like i guess you know is it you have to have an accident of the week as it were you have to sort of continue whatever the drama is with the some of the regulars like what what, what was that experience like writing for something like casualty well, um, it, it is more disciplined. I mean, one of the first, you know, you are given the running elements of yes. what's happening with Charlie and Duffy and blah, blah, uh, and what you've got to work in. Um, and what you actually had to do, at least when I was doing it, uh, was you prepared a quite a detailed synopsis with a time scale. Mm. Because it's actually, if you're intercutting between four or five stories, it's pretty easy yeah to get the time scale wrong you know mm. so somebody walked down a corridor and at the same time in some other story somebody's gone up a mountain fallen down the mountain <laughs> down the you know and you've got yeah. to make sure that it all holds together i mean yes. what because i'm not really very good at uh, running format or so I, I just can't do it it's sure uh, sure um but what i liked about character at that point is the stories of the week were your stories so yeah. you could actually um and you could start and finish them how you liked so you've got three stories and what you had met and of course they all had to be cleared uh, mm. you know particularly like oh no we did that story three years ago or whatever whatever yeah. but um once you've done that you could create the characters and their their story um yeah. uh, i mean the one i I most liked that I did was um, because it's, I thought, um, the, the um, it started off with a married couple having a quarrel about a holiday brochure. Mm. And the husband said, right, I'm going out and taking the dog for a walk. Uh, the next scene he went out and a bomb exploded, killing the dog and sending oh, him to right. casualty. And I thought, wow, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, and the rest of the story was about why that had happened. You know, yes. um, and it was animal activists had identified him as a doctor working in a research laboratory with animals. Ah. But she, she actually put it under the wrong car. Um, so it was quite. But I just I, I thought, wow, I, I was quite pleased with that one because it just because with with casualty the problem is everybody knows that every story is going to end up in an accident of some sort yeah so half the time you think i wonder what's going to happen with this one you know and slightly wrong footing people about what's going to happen to who is part of the game and i was quite pleased with that one because you know you just didn't see it coming at all yeah uh, I don't envy the writers now. If, if you say back then, they said, oh, you know, we did this story before. After 35 years, uh, coming up with new accidents must be a challenge, uh, I imagine. Well, I was, I was involved when I did it. It was still only 13 episodes a year. Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, in fact, the year I did it first, it used to be 12, and they added one more episode, and that was the episode I got. Um, yeah. And uh, I can remember at that point they were talking about expanding, making to weekly soap, and the then medical officer, and we're going back to some point in the 90s probably, said, well, I've looked through the book and I have to tell you that we have done every conceivable accident or thing that <laughs> already. Yes. And then years <laughs> later, and it's because uh, actually it isn't really about the accidents, it's about no. people. And, and sometimes people get very excited about, you know, some rare infectious disease or something that somebody's got. And, the answer is they wouldn't go to casualty. They go straight into intensive care. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so you don't, don't have, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, a, I don't really watch Holby, so, but Holby goes, goes a bit more into that sort of side, doesn't it? Yeah, which of course, sadly, is uh, ending next March, I believe, uh, as part of a restructuring or something. I don't know what the official line is, but yeah, Holby's going, unfortunately. But yeah. I think Casualty's sticking around. I think it's, I mean, it's still popular, it seems. People yeah. still watch it. So. Yeah, may it stay. it's a yeah. good format, no doubt. It is a good format. Um, just to just because uh, I I forgot to mention earlier, just to bring it back to who for a second. Of course, last year, uh, you penned a sort of prequel to Greatest Show in the Galaxy for Big Finish, the Psychic Circus. Um, yeah. what was that like for you then, revisiting this world, these characters over over thirty years since the the TV story? Yeah, it was quite 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 strange. Um. It came about because I went to um, Gallifrey One, the big science yes. fiction in LA, and mm. I met some of the people to do with Big Finish. And I was there with Jessica Martin, who is a mate. And mm. she said, why doesn't Stephen do a story about the prequel to uh, Greatest Show in the Galaxy? And everyone, including me, thought oh, that's not a bad idea. You know, it, it was something I thought, I felt, there was something to be done with how the process of how these people got corrupted and sucked into it. You know? yeah. so, so I felt there was something to say. Mm. Um, oddly, since then, um, I've actually done a few things. I've done, with Cutaway Comics, there is, uh, there are going to be a couple of audio dramas, short audio yes. dramas but for the people who back the Kickstarter. So I've done a story about a Kang, I've done a story about a Resi, and I've done a, a story about uh, the great architect himself. Um, yeah. And then for this new short story anthology, I've done one about the caretaker. So, okay. uh, so I have actually gone, but once I'd gone back into the world, I sort of just, it was quite interesting, you know, with the other ones I was actually asked but it didn't seem so daunting as it did when I started doing Psychic Circus sure uh, you know yeah. um, and, it, and is that nice for you then in a way like you said earlier you don't consider yourself primarily a, a science fiction writer but yeah. you find it all right you you enjoy sort of just dipping your toes back into like the realm of Doctor Who every now and then well it's a lot yeah I think it's probably because you know when I did Psychic Circus it's the first time I'd written anything for about who for 35 years or so yes you know? yeah <laughs> and i think the um visiting gallifrey one did have quite an impact on me because my own attitude towards the work doctor who work has changed because after it closed down rested or whatever we want to say you know yeah. it wasn't i wasn't you weren't really encouraged to feel proud of the fact that you've written for Doctor Who. Sure. Uh, and in fact, you know, if you were pitching for certain jobs, it was like, a, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, you've written for Doctor Who, tell us about casualty. Um, and so you sort of got, rather got into the habit of thinking, and, and, you know, the fans that officially hated it, uh, that really it, the stuff was gone. Um, yeah. And it sort of started a bit before the new series started up. There were a few articles people wrote saying, being much more favourable about it. Mm. But of course, it, is, it was the return of Doctor Who, which I think sparked off and it, the interest in classic Who. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and people revisiting them. And I, so I think, I, you know, going to Gallifrey was very interesting. I mean, it's the first time I'd met people doing cosplay on my characters. 
pictures. <laughs> that must have been quite a surreal <laughs> sight. Yeah. Quite, quite surreal. Um, <laughs> you know, people were coming up to me and saying, thank you very much for writing this and asking me little questions about this. And um, at the end of it, we all had to come on stage and say goodbye. And I, mm. I thought we'd just go get away. I know we got on stage. I realized <laughs> We're all going to have to say something. <laughs> one by one, the microphone was passed around. Yeah. And there were, there were all the younger, cooler guys saying, hey, Gallifrey, it's been a blast. Yeah. And the audience getting yeah. there. <laughs> and I, I actually, I, I ended up saying, uh, you know, thank you very much for asking me. I'm actually very touched that something I remember 35 years ago is still remembered. Yeah. No, and I think I, that's, that, that's lovely as well. And I think that's sort of, I, you know, that was part of a change in attitude to me. I mean, come on, you know, embrace it. It's fantastic that something you wrote all that time ago is still remembered and people are interested in it. You know, be, I, be nice to yourself and be nice to them. Yes. Yeah, I, th- I think it's like you said earlier. It's like when you see, when we're talking about seeing you like, you know, your name on the TV screen saying, yeah. oh, I wrote this. It's sort of that life beyond you, I guess, like you said. So I think with... And, and with Doctor Who, like people take uh, all a lot of the stories, like you say, to their to their hearts in terms of how what it means for them, if it was their first episode or one they enjoyed. And yes. I think the appreciation, obviously, you know, sadly, you'll always have like a you know a vocal minority who uh, are primarily negative, and that that's yes. their that's their corner. But I think on the whole, um, the people I've experienced anyway are genuinely very appreciative and I mean like you said about um the new who sort of kickstarting the interest you know I got into Doctor Who through the revival um it was my dad who said oh you should watch this because he remembered the original and then you know when Christopher Eccleston became David Tennant I was like who's this and he said oh yeah there's there's eight more of these and I was like what so then getting into classic who as a nine ten year old I thought was the perfect time because you know your imagination's so rife that I wasn't bothered about you know outdated effects or sets or anything like that if if the stories were good if it if it captured my imagination and that's why I fell in love with classic who and I'd argue your stories are no exception to that you know I watched those as a as a kid, not re- you know, again, not bothered that they were old, you know, quote unquote old or had old production. That didn't bother me. Like the characters were interesting, they were gripping. You know, it was it was fresh and exciting. So yeah, I think a lot of us have that appreciation now. Yeah, I, I think I think it has it has you know changed quite a lot. And I mean, actually, the other thing about Gracie's show is that John Nathan told us clear on how difficult it was to do monsters. And in yes. that show, there are hardly any monsters. The things that are really scary are the robot clowns. Yes. And yeah. the robot clowns are, were very good acrobats, all wearing the same mask. And I mean, I think it's an effect that's been used quite a few times in Who now, but, you know, robots like that are scary in, yes. a, way that, in a way that hasn't dated. Whereas, yes. you know, the, the monster made out of bits of elastic and whatever. <laughs> yeah. Really, in a way. Yes, yeah. yeah. But even even those ones, like you say, the ones made out of elastic and papier mâché, you know, I think even now people look and so you know it makes them smile in a way because it's that it's that fondness, you know. And I think yeah. I, I think what I've noticed that the conversation changes. I think a lot more people who were like quick to jump and say, "Oh, you know, well, doesn't this look terrible or isn't this bad?" Yeah. I think there's an, a, a greater understanding, but also appreciation of the constraints that who was under back then especially like you were saying in the late 80s you know when you're not being necessarily greatly supported by the corporation that you're making the program for not to mention the time and the budget and but you know considering those stories turned out the way they did despite all of that I think is a is a testament to you know yourself and everyone who worked on it yes I mean JNT was not great on scripts at all Mm. but he let us get on with it he gave yes. Andrew a lot of freedom, but he was brilliant at the other side. He he was he was a production manager. He was a great problem solver. You know, the classic one being obviously the remaking of Greatest Show on uh, yes. Car Park, but uh, also all the way through, he would be thinking about it. And it's interesting. I only discovered this quite later. In fact, a lot of the budget for Doctor Who at that point came from BBC Enterprises. Oh, okay. Uh, because yeah. BBC Enterprises knew, even at that stage, that they could make money out of Doctor Who and selling. Absolutely, yeah. So they gave him, so quite a lot of the budget came from that source. And 
for whatever his faults, JNT was way ahead of thinking about how, you know, he did the American convention circuit. He actually, what is now a, a very profitable industry for the BBC, you know, taking the stuff around the world and flogging it and that. Yes, yes. Spin-offs and stuff. At the time, I, I think they thought JNT was a bit vulgar because he did these things, but he, sure. he was smart. He was ahead of his time. Yeah, I think it's to JNT. He was a a, a fair fairly big factor in the show lasting as long as it did back then I think you know with all the troubles that were going on he was sort of steadfast in keeping it going but um absolutely uh just the last thing I wanted to touch on who before we move into some of your work in radio and theater is another quote I found from Jonathan Powell at the time I'm not you might have heard of this already like you said he thought it you know he, he enjoyed Paradise Towers he thought it was first rate um uh, there's a quote where he apparently, I, I can't remember if it said he wrote to, I think he passed this on to JNT, I think, saying, oh, can we do, like you said, can we do more of this? But the the quote says, uh, Paradise Towers, but with the Daleks. And I know what you said, I know what you said about the Daleks earlier, um, but say, hypothetically say, you know, well, back in 1987, if JNT had come to you and said, look, the higher ups have really liked it. Can we do a, a Paradise Towers sequel story? with the Daleks would you would you have given that the go-ahead or would you have been like no well I think at that point (laughs) I'd gone yes because you know what about the you know commissions don't grow on trees you know absolutely yes I I would have given it a bash but I think I would have struggled sure Uh, I really would have struggled with that one but I would have certainly tried yeah, an interesting. <laughs> hey, maybe big finish if you're listening. Hypothetical. What if the Daleks yeah, at Paradise yeah, yeah. Towers? Yes. Right. Well, let's move on to some of the other mediums then. Like we said at the beginning, you've worked you've worked in countless mediums. So uh, radio being one of them, you've helmed a lot of radio productions, adaptations. Yes. Um, do you would you do you prefer like working in that medium to television, or do you think is it's all the same but just a different series of pros and cons in a way? Well, I think they are very different. Uh, the thing about radio is you get messed around much less. Sure. Uh, uh, I think it's getting a bit, it's starting to get a bit too bureaucratic, sadly. But um, at that point, once you had an idea commissioned, your producer was also your director, was also your script editor and your casting director. One person. Yes. Yeah. And if you got on with that person, had a good working relationship, you would go ahead, you would make it, and the chances of it not getting on the air were minimal. Yes, yeah. So from that point of view, it was a much uh, more, uh, what's the word? In that way, there, w- there wasn't the extra aggro. It was a more pleasant sure. uh, working environment. And I worked with some wonderful producers. So it, it, it it's very good fun. Um, yeah. It, I, as I say, I think ultimately theatre is more my love than radio. For uh, sure. But, but yeah. you do get a lot of free. I'm very lucky to have, you know, done a lot of original plays and particularly adaptations. You know, I've done a, a great deal. So it's been... Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just be, before we move on to theatre, just I think it's an interesting question to ask. Like n- you know, nowadays, twenty twenty one, do you what? Wh- how do you see the? I guess the future of radio drama because that it's this question was uh, I wrote this as my dissertation at university. Oh, right. um, because obviously, you know, you've got your long standing ones. You know, programs like The Archers, which which seemingly are going to run forever. <laughs> you know, and um, and you've got obviously companies like Big Finish and other independent sources. But in terms of, you know, you look at the main radio stations and how, you know, vastly reduced the sort of airtime is for dramas or original uh, bits. It, I just think it's an interesting question to poise. And for someone like yourself, who's worked a lot in that in that field, do you think the future of radio drama is bright or do you think it's in a bit of a, a, a an odd state? Well, it's interesting because I've just, uh, I wrote a book in 2013 called Say You Want to Write Radio Drama uh, ah. with a, a late, the late lamented Claire Grove, one of my favourite producers. Um, and I've just done a bit of research and uh, written a short update to go into the next edition of this book because, you know, mm. between 2013 and now, 
the, the picture has changed a lot. Yes. And that a lot of the stuff we uh, provide, you know, we describe uh, in terms of BBC, uh, radio, BBC radio drama, some of those sluts have gone. Yes. Somebody yeah. actually estimated that in the last five years, something like 40% of the output was gone. God. So lots of repeats, etc. Um, on the other hand, uh, the book is basically built around the idea that if you want to get into radio drama, um, you, 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 you really have to write a 45 minute original play. That's your original goal, because none of the other things will happen until you've done that. And that, that, sure. slot, that slot is still there and there are still slots for new writers. But what I, as you're saying, so in terms of the BBC, mm. uh, audio drama is, I would say, in decline for that reason. Sure. On the other hand, audio drama as such is hugely expanding. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's taken off particularly in the States where it wasn't popular since the 30s, really. Mm. And... Um, I, I gather it tends to be called podcasts rather than... Yes. Yeah. In fact, the term radio drama, I realise now, is probably defunct. It's all audio drama. Sure, uh, sure. Which is a realistic reflection of how people listen to it. Um, and there, there is a lot going on. But as you mm. said quite correctly, most of it is within sort of genre. Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of science fiction through people like Big Finish. There's a lot of lots of stuff going on there. A lot of things like biographies of famous stars. This sort yes. Of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but and the interest in really is in long form stuff. Uh, you know, something like Audible. I'm yes. so yeah. very open to ideas, but they want they're looking for ideas that make ten hour dramas. Yes. There's, not really, <laughs> there's not really any place there for one-offs. Yeah. No, yeah. It's really the way the BBC went this way years ago. You know, the one-off dramas are a, a thing completely of the past, you know. Sure. Uh, um, so that's quite interesting. You get the phenomenon uh, that um, the recent Neil Gaiman stuff, that mm. uh, Dirk Mags has, has done, I mean, has been huge and huge yes. in the States. And it's apparently, you know, the first time there have been billboards advertising a raid, an audio drama on <laughs> yeah. Sunset Boulevard since 1930, you know, something like that. Yeah. So yeah. I think this is part of the pandemic yeah. effect is people were drawn back to audio drama and to audio books. And it's a thing where you can go around listening to them, can't you? You don't have to see yeah. a screen. Yeah, and so I think in that way, but it is quite, what they're looking for is quite specific, I think, much more specific, mm. you know, than the BBC's drama, which is very eclectic in its output. Um, yeah. I and mean, horror is another field where there's a lot oh, of yeah. yeah. Or, you know, uh, Son of Games and Game of Thrones, things like this. You know, a lot yeah. of that sort of stuff. So, it's out there uh, and expanding, but not in on the traditional model. Yeah, and I suppose, like you say, maybe it's those original, like the original one-offs, like you said, that maybe yeah. get lost in the mix. Because a lot of the stuff that you say is catered to drama. I like you said correctly. A lot of it, I guess, is catered to, if it's fair to say, like pre-existing brands. You know, obviously, like yes. big, like Doctor Who or, or Game of Thrones or whatever yeah. it is. Like they're, they're brands that people already recognise. So I guess they might feel more inclined to check something like that out than say if I'd written a. 45 minute completely original no one's ever heard of it i guess their thinking is people might be less inclined to to listen to so. that but yeah and also there seems to be um that people want quant quantity as well as quality i mean i can't remember the name of the series but one of the people i talked to when i was getting the information said audible had done the a very glitzy five-hour series starring david tennant and i can't oh, remember right. Which they had big hopes for, and it didn't yeah. really take off. And when they did the research, one of the things that people were saying was, "Well, it was only five hours long." 
<laughs> only so. yeah so. for our for our money that's the last 10 oh, hours sure yes so yes, people yeah. are into the immersive you know the blitz the the, the you know the, the whole thing of I, I want to be in this world for a significant amount of time yes yeah um yeah. It's, it's not something i'm good at or interested in um uh-huh. but uh it, that that is the way the world is so that's i think that from you know probably when from when you did your thesis it's quite a shift in things absolutely i mean i did that what it was about four or five years ago so like you say already in those four or five years so much as uh like you say some of the slots on bbc radio four or four extra that hosted radio drama are gone now and just the the landscape so i guess you said as you say it's nice that it's still around and there's this boom in a way for consuming audio content if you like but a shame in a way that those more original those more uh, out there pieces that would have gotten the time of day maybe don't necessarily get that same affection uh, anymore that is a bit no, i think I, I mean i think it's sad because the the cuts in the bbc are not because people who make drama don't want to make drama it's to do you know license fee politics of course think, yeah you know. yeah uh, but it's very sad there's a period in which audio drama is really taking off the BBC yeah. is actually contracting its audio output, you know. Yeah. And I, you know, the people I know, the producers who are active in that field, if they're not in the BBC, are are very busy, but they're not working for the BBC. Yeah. Yeah, it's down uh, to other. I think yeah. it's it's no longer. I guess the BBC is no longer like the sole like monolith of of radio or audio drama if you like as it perhaps was 30 40 years ago you know and it was the you've got all these independent companies now which is great again it's great and hopefully audiences will will buy into that as time goes on yeah. um yeah but well, with, with i mean this... even between when i can date you when what we wrote in 2013 is out of mm. date in 2021 yeah, only eight years. So yeah, it shows how fast it all moves, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. But moving up, lastly, let's move on to theatre then. As you mentioned, you, you have a, a new play coming up that'll that'll go around next year. So you said theatre's like sort of the, the, the biggest love you have, I suppose, for the like the, the performing industry. Uh, mm. is that again something you, you've had since since you were a young lad, or is it something that came around uh, later I, on? For... No, theatre was always what I, you know, I went to school, you know, I wrote little plays, but I also enjoyed acting and I did a lot of acting and writing at university. It sort of, it, so that's where it all started for me. Yes, it, yeah. You know, and there is something about the immediacy of theatre that you really don't get anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes that's terrifying, as, as you know. If, yeah. if things yeah. aren't, going, aren't going right or... <laughs> In a performance of something I'd written, one of the actors had a blackout and cut a third of the script. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the next half hour was spent trying, with the, everybody else trying to get back to the point where he, uh, you, you get all that sort of stuff. Yes, um, yeah. But it's still, when it's working, there's, no, there's nothing like it, really. Um, yeah. That's, that's sort of what I feel. Um, yeah. Like you say, it's that live reaction, isn't it? Like when it all falls into place and people are, I guess, connecting with the play or the characters or whatever it is you're wanting them to to get out of it rather than, you know, we've all had performances or gone to shows where, you know, in the first 20 minutes, you're like, oh, this isn't going so well. But then you're like, oh, but I've still got to perform the other the other hour. So you've got to get through it somehow. But Uh, Absolutely. No, no. I mean, we've also all sat in the theatre where there were three of you watching a play that was not very good and thinking, can I leave at the interval? You know, Uh, (laughs) leave nobody in the audience. Um, yeah, no, the, the, there is all that that side to it. But I remember also the other thing is, although it's terrifying, there's also the immediacy. I mean, I remember this when I when I started doing things like Casualty. You know, I'd got in advance. You know, the the video cassette, and I watched it. It was there. It was never going to change. Yeah. And when it went out, if I sat in my room and in my home, and I'd usually try and get a few people around just to make a bit of a sense of occasion. Yes. Yeah. It didn't matter whether it was just me there doing the ironing and watching it. At that point, Casualty had audience of something like 17 million. Yes. Crazy numbers. It made absolutely no effect on what was in front of me at all. Yeah. 
okay. it was it was there it was done it was finished hmm. and it, there was the the experience whereas in theater even if you've got 10 people in the audience it everyone is a different live experience absolutely yeah it's a what i mean wonderful medium to work in theater yes. I, I won't fault that at all would um, you would you rather work in theater than in <laughs> do voice service so oh it's a question isn't it i mean i i think i'd like yourself i'd say theater's my biggest love you know mm. that's where i sort of started getting into acting i think i agree with you on the immediacy of it even if it goes wrong like it, it's it's such a thrill because every night, even though you're doing the same show, every night, like you say, can be a completely different experience for the actors, for the audience. And th- there's a certain thrill about that, I think. Yeah, and no, like I say, when it, and when it all goes right, when it all, you know, falls into place and people connect with the bits you want them to connect to and they, you know, afterwards they'll say, oh, we really loved it. You know, that it, it doesn't beat that feeling somehow, you know, that as you say, because you, you know they've been there, they've watched it, they've they've seen you, they've been right there in front of you. Yes. Um, yeah. So I think I'd probably take. I, I'd I'd like to work more in theatre. Voiceovers, I'd absolutely do if they came around. But I think in terms of pure enjoyment and as a yeah. as a skill sharpener as well, I think you can't beat live theatre really above all else. It's the it's the best place I think. Yes. Yes. No. There we we agree about that. Yes, yeah, all in sync with that one. Um, so tell, if, if, well, if you'd like to, tell us a bit about uh, the new play that's uh, that's coming. What what's the sort of general synopsis, if you like? About well, that? yes, it's quite difficult to describe. I mean, basically, I mean, it's it's a comedy, but it's about a woman dying, right? Um, yeah. And it was actually original inspiration was my mum's death because my mum was very unusual. She had all her faculties when she died. Hmm. She uh, she could uh, she had her memory she had her sight yep. she had a smell she had everything she knew exactly what was going on and she also was hmm. absolutely clear that she was dying yeah and so though although it's not an autobiographical piece in that way it that was the inspiration and I thought I've never really seen a play with somebody like that at the center of it plays tend to be about all the people around the deathbed. Yes, squabbling yeah, yeah. and blah. Or alternatively, uh, now of course there's a lot of exploration of dementia and what the world of dementia and how that affects people and their perception. So that that's the starting point, and you know yeah. it built it's built around uh, you know the main characters on stage all the time, and mm. I always hoped it would be a tempting role for uh, what Penelope would call an actress of a certain age. <laughs> yes, uh, and because there aren't that many for them and fortunately you know when she got it got to her she said she just simply said i want to do this on the stage hmm. and yeah. um 15 months later you know here we are uh, <laughs> yes after uh, long and, of course, and in a way it couldn't have happened much because of covid it couldn't have happened much faster than opening yes. next february really uh, you know it would well, we just have to fingers crossed that nothing, things don't come back. Of so, course, yeah. So that's 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 basic. That's basically what what the play's about. Yeah, I'd like to see. I'd, I mean, I'd like to see it even more now because that that concept. I mean, my my grandmother is ninety nine currently. And wow. I guess sort of like you say about your mum, she still has all her faculties. She's got a memory. She's very sound of mind. She's as active as she can be. Yeah. Um, but I think she's also very. Uh, she's not in ill health, Touchwood, currently the time of recording. But um, she's, but I think she's very accepting of the fact, you know, she's ninety nine, you know, and that yeah. realistically, her time, if you like, is is winding down. But she makes no sort of, you know, secret of that. She's not afraid of that. It seems, you know, she's very upfront about it. Um, so yeah, but I, I agree with you. That sort of having a person like that as the forefront of a play. I know I haven't seen that. And like you say, it's the typical, it's someone's dying and it's all the family around, like who's getting the money or what are we going to do about yeah. this? Or da, 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 da. Yeah. So, exactly. so, no, that, I, so that's, that's it. And I mean, I hope it's quite, I, I, I don't know if Penelope is playing the lead, it will be. I hope a lot of it's quite funny. You know, it's not. Yes. Yeah. Uh, she's quite a witty, sparky woman at the center of it. Um, so there's, yeah. So it's not filled with self-pity. Sure. Yeah. I think that's what some people, well, I, I guess people steer away from it, I think, because some would argue it's uncomfortable. But I think when people 
just from experience, you know, with other people, like when people approach, I guess, you know, the end of their life or towards the end, like a lot of people, I guess, can use humor to sort of, you know, to, to process it or get through yeah. it. And I think um, obviously that it can be uncomfortable to a lot of people, but um, I think in terms of a play and stuff, I, I'm glad that you're saying you, Penelope will probably make it humorous in places as well, because I think it's it's important to get that across if that's how, you know, certain people or in this case characters process their situation you know why not why wouldn't they not make a joke about it to try and lift them or lift someone else so yeah, yeah. yes absolutely i mean she's a spiky character so in part of it she's doing this to keep at bay coming to terms with certain things about her life you know but exactly i mean she, you know i there's yeah exactly well i just agree with what you're saying about how it should mm. be how it should be done yes yeah Absolutely. Well, again, for anyone listening, the play opens uh, next February and it goes on a nine week tour. Um, what I'll do is I'll find the I'll find the list of where it's going and I'll put it in the video description so people should be able to see that and hopefully attend it. And as I say, I'll, I'd hope to attend it myself at some point on the tour. Because no, I'll, I'll, I'll to... send, I, actually, what I'll do is I'll send you the press release because that gives, oh, all, thank the, you. Uh, that gives all the dates and the contact for booking mm-hmm. tickets throughout. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stephen. Well, I think we'll start to wrap things up there. But just before you go, aside from the play, is there any sort of upcoming projects uh, that you could talk about that you've got upcoming for the future? Like, Well, um, uh, there's a short story book, Build High for Happiness, which is about, yes. you know, which collection. But also next year, Obverse Press are going to bring out uh, a volume of my monologues, which mm. the the ones inspired by Doctor Who, uh, some of them are inspired by, I read the Old Testament as part of okay. my project, and I've written some stories about some of the weirder bits of the Old Testament. And then the third part is a collection of the monologues that I've written for radio for people like Sean Phillips and Bernard Cribbins yes. and Dora Brown. So that's coming out in the next autumn. And uh, the other thing that's coming up, uh, I, I, I work with a company called the Weaver Dance Company, who are, and we, we, these are pieces which explore the history of, early history of uh, dance drama in Britain. And sure. so, so we've got a, a, that project's happening in J- January. Yeah. So, yeah, there's still things going on. Keeping busy. That's what we all want in this industry, isn't it? <laughs> to keep Absolutely. busy. I hope, I hope the same for you too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, got some things lined up. But yeah, as long as always see the what's coming next, that's the key thing. Absolutely. That's something. Awesome. Well, just before you go then, Stephen, is uh, where can where can the listeners uh, find you or your work? Any websites or social medias you'd like to shout out? I do have a website which sort of keeps up to date on, well, nearly up to date, not always completely up to date on uh, what I do. So that's fairly easy to find, you know, www.stephenwatt.com co.uk mm-hmm. wonderful excellent well go and check out the the website folks all of steven's work is on there you can find out a lot more information and uh if, if you've been listening to this podcast thank you very much hope you've enjoyed it if you're listening on youtube please leave us a like and subscribe as well we've got new podcasts every week and if you're listening uh, just on spotify apple music anything like that again thank you very much please give us a follow for new episodes every week so all that's left for me to say is once again Stephen, thank you so much for coming on today it's been an absolute pleasure okay thank you very much for asking me no problem and for everyone listening i will see you next time 